0: Welcome to our evening worship service. We're glad that you're with us. We'll begin with our call to worship, which comes from Psalm 73, verses 22 through 28. Hear God call us to worship. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works. Let us pray. Father, whom have we in heaven beside you? And on earth there is nothing that we desire beside you. Our flesh and our hearts may fail, but you are the strength of our hearts and our portion forever. Lord, if not in actuality, at least in desire, we would put you above all other things and desire you more than all other things. So as we come to you tonight with empty hands and with open hearts, seeking to praise you. Would you fill us up with spiritual goods to sustain us for the week to come? And would you be glorified and lifted up in this place? For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together now and sing hymn number 457, which is, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. be seated. Our Old Testament reading comes from Jonah chapter 1, and we will read verses 8 through 15 of Jonah chapter 1. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And this ends the reading of God's word. If you look in your bulletin, in your order of worship, you will find now a corporate confession of sin. We will use these words to corporately confess our sins aloud to God. After that, we'll have some time of silence where we can silently confess our sins or cast any burdens that we may have tonight before the Lord. So let us pray together. Father, like Jonah, we are prone to run away from you. While you call us to draw near... We are prone to wonder. Forgive our wondering, pardon our sins, and cast our guilt into the depth of the sea. Grant us assurance of our salvation and the peace of Christ, which surpasses understanding. For we ask this in his holy name. Amen. Father, we thank you tonight that while we are prone to wonder, that you are steadfast, that while we are prone to rebel, you are always taking our hearts captive and bringing them back to you, that while we we are shaky and unsteady, that you are always solid and offer us a firm foundation. And as the book of Hebrews says, you offer us a city that cannot be shaken, whose designer and builder is God. Here we have no lasting city, but there we have eternal life and peace that enters in behind the veil into your very presence. You say to us, resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. And so we come tonight to draw near. And we come with different needs. We have physical ailments. We have emotional struggles. We have spiritual difficulties and slumps. And we lift them all up before you now. You tell us to cast our cares and our burdens upon you because you care for us. And so we do so. I want to pray tonight for lost loved ones that some of us may have like prodigals who fled away from the Father. So we have loved ones who are on our hearts, whom we pray and lift up to you regularly. And we lift them up tonight and pray that you would draw the prodigal home. That like Jonah, you would swallow them up in your mercy and bring them to the place that you've appointed for them. That they might live before your presence and in your grace. I want to pray tonight for families. <clears throat> Thankful for families that are stable. Thankful for families who are loving one another well and who are living under your conscious blessing, but also for family who are st- families who might be struggling. Pray that Christ would be the tie that binds their hearts in Christian love. And lastly, I want to pray for any of us here tonight who might come with guilty consciences, who might come with besetting sins, who might come with something resting uneasy on their hearts or minds that would keep them from drawing near to you, Lord. And I pray that you would give them a deep sense of your forgiveness and peace as they turn away from their sin and toward the forgiveness and the mercy that you offer in the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of us, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us sinners. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Our assurance of pardon tonight comes from Micah 7, verses 18 through 19. Very powerful words. And I want you to hear them tonight as if they were written for you. Because they are. This is God's word to us just as much as it was to the original audience. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. For those who've rested and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel, he has cast your sins into the depth of the seas. Receive his forgiveness. Amen. But as we now receive the offering, we will also sing hymn number 533, which is, I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice. 533. I'd invite you to turn with me now to our New Testament reading, which is in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Going to begin our reading in Luke 8 22. But before I read it, let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we don't underestimate the privilege we have of sitting under the power of Your Word. As one of my professors said years ago, and I'm always reminded of it, we aren't here to sit in judgment over your word we're here to have your word sit in judgment over us and and really it's judgment is gracious because it's all meant to lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ who says come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest so father would we find rest and would we find peace in your word tonight as you make it alive to us for we ask it in Christ's name amen Luke 8 verses 22 through 25 hear God's word rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. This ends the reading of God's Word. This passage is meaningful to me personally for a number of reasons, one of which being the fact that here we get to see Jesus sleeping. It's not a common sight. We were talking this morning in the sermon about the idea of, of course, the reality that Jesus is both God and man. And as God, we know from the Psalms, the Lord that keepeth Israel, he neither slumbers nor sleeps, but as a man who shares a common nature. With us here, we see him tired. We see him worn out. And I know, I remember years ago when I was in college, I had a night where I stayed up studying algebra literally all night. Um, 4 30 in the morning, something like that, and I fell asleep. I had to get up and go to work the next morning. And I remember driving my car, praying, Lord, how am I even going to make it to work, much less make it through a day of work? And this passage just shot into my mind. Jesus sleeping. And somehow God gave me strength through that to remind me of the common humanity of my Lord, that though our Lord slept, He He offers us rest, and He offers us His own power. When this series, on Sunday nights, we're dealing with the issue of dealing with spiritual slumps. And this passage relates to what we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, which is being a non-anxious presence, being able to find rest, Being a non-anxious presence doesn't mean you'll never have anxiety. It means that when anxiety comes, you'll be able to name it, and you'll be able to not spread it. And in our passage, Jesus and the disciples are in a storm. And while Jesus sleeps, we see the disciples start to panic. And we see their anxiety spread, and they bring it to Christ. And Jesus asks them one poignant question. Where is your faith? It's not that they don't have faith. It's the question of where is it? What are you doing with it? How are you applying it in the circumstance? Why aren't you aiming your faith in the proper place? Charles Spurgeon, I'm paraphrasing, but he said salvation means we have these infinite resources available to us. We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But faith writes checks to actually get those goods from that heavenly place to apply it to our, our own lives. So if you're going through a hard time spiritually, this is Christ's great question to the disciples and it's his great question to us. Where is your faith? So there's three things we can learn about faith from this passage that will help us answer that question. Where is your faith when we go through hard times? First thing, God often puts our faith on trial. So the story in our passage comes after Jesus' teaching on the parable of the sower. And he describes different types of hearts and how they either receive or reject the good news of the gospel. So let me read a little bit from that. So if you skip back a little bit in Luke 8, starting in verse 11, as Jesus is explaining the parable to the disciples, he says, now the parable is this. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit and patience. So back in verse 13, Jesus talks about seeds that are scattered on rocky ground. In the time of testing, they fall away. Trials are like the scorching sun that dry up faith. And in the storm, the disciples see what a time of testing is, and the temptation is that your faith will dry up. The question is, are they going to fall away? Peter talks about trials in a similar way in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials are meant to test us like fire. And if you're a believer, they're not meant to burn you up. They're meant to purify you and strengthen you. Trials test trust. Fire tests faith. The problem that we face, we're not in a a ship in a storm, but we are surrounded by metaphorical storms. And bad things are much more likely to get your attention than good things. They're much more likely to grab your focus than the good. That's why the 24 hour news cycle exists. That's what feeds the monster of social media. We love to pay attention to the bad. In a violent storm, the storm is much more attention-grabbing than the thought that something miraculous might come out of the storm on the other end. Or that God might have a purpose in the storm. Or that the storm might be a call to action for you because it's actually a faith-growing test. It's a faith-growing trial, and that's actually the purpose of it. In our passage in Luke 8, 24, as the disciples go to Jesus and wake him up, they say, Master... We're perishing. They woke him up to tell him they were about to die. And so often in our lives, that's, exa- that's our prayer life summed up in a nutshell. It's like, Lord, I'm dying. And that's, if it's not the only time we pray, it's the most fervent time that we pray. It's to tell him all of the bad things that are going on in our lives because those are the things that get our attention. Those are the things that we worry about. When I used to preach regularly at Forest Grove, uh, PCA, I love that church. I, have, I will never say anything negative about that church. and The one thing that they always made it hard to start a service was I would walk into a yellow legal pad on the pulpit that had been freshly filled with this week's prayer requests. And sometimes it would be two flips of the pad. Before I got done, it's just reading so and so sick, so and so sick, so and so's got cancer, so and so's son's got cancer, and just on and on and on. And before the service, we would stop and we would, before we gave the invocation, before we gave the call to worship, we would pray this long list of prayers. And yes, we should pray for those who are sick, but if you look at the Apostle Paul's prayer in the New Testament, he never does it. He's always praying for the spiritual health and growth of the people he's writing to, the spiritual health and growth of the churches, because I say because, but I think this is just a fact. It's so much easier to just get bogged down on the negative that we almost forget the positive altogether. That's why I love Thanksgiving. It's the one time a year we say, we're going to focus on the positive, no matter what our circumstances are. We're going to be thankful. But our prayers are often, Lord, we're dying. And our prayers even keep calling us back to our problems when Jesus is trying to call us to him and to faith in him. Walter Marshall in the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, this is how he describes prayer. He says, Strive to bring your soul into order by prayer. Prayer is pulling yourself together, in other words. He continues, However disordered by guilt, anguish, inordinate cares or fears, a watch must be often wound up. You must wrestle in prayer against your unbelief, your doubts, your fears, and your cares. See, faith goes through trials, and it needs to be wound up like a watch, through prayer, through the means of grace. Paul told Timothy to fan the flame of the gift of God that was in him. Peter said, First Peter four twelve, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't let these things surprise you. Don't let them rob you of your faith. They are trials that God is sending not to crush you, but to build you up. Not to burn you up, but to purify you. So when you're going through a trial, wind up your faith. Wrestle wrestle against your unbelief and doubt. Ask yourself what Jesus asked his disciples. Where is your faith? That's the first thing. Here's the second. Faith must be applied. Applied. It's one thing to say you generally believe in Jesus. It's another to believe in him in every circumstance. Not believe in him for your salvation, but to believe in your specific circumstances in life that he is with you and that he's working for your good. Lloyd-Jones says, and again, I forgot to mention, I based the outline of this series on Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, and in his sermon on this passage, Lloyd-Jones says that we tend to look at our faith like a thermostat. You know, on a chilly day, we set the thermostat to a certain temperature, and when it starts getting cold, we just expect automatically for that thermostat to kick on and bring heat. And he says we look at faith like that. It's like we go through life, and we just think faith is set at a certain temperature, and when things start going astray, when the temperature starts dropping, that faith will kick in and everything will be all right. But it doesn't work that way. Faith is not automatic. It has to be active, consciously active. It's one thing to say you generally believe in Christ. It's another to say, in this circumstance, I'm going to apply what I know and what I believe about Christ to my situation. It's one thing to say He can save you from your sins. It's another to believe... And to say that he's with you in a storm, especially when you're right in the middle of it. You look at the disciples again. They're freaking out. Why? Luke eight twenty-three. As they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water, and were in danger. The phrase translated windstorm. This is a whirlwind. It's, it's a serious storm. This isn't just a, sh- a shower. This is wind. This is rain. This is imminent danger. And Jesus uses situations like this over and over again as an illustration of what the Christian life is like because there are going to be periods of time in our lives when we feel like we're not in control and when we're at the mercy of our circumstances. And the disciples in this situation do the wisest thing they could have done. They go to Jesus. They say, Master, Master, we're perishing. And you would think Jesus would say, Great job, guys, you passed the test. You woke me up. You called on me. Sometimes I've had the thought, this is pure speculation, but I wonder if Jesus is almost like a grumpy dad here who's just been woke up by his children. And it's like, why did you call me? Where is your faith? I'm in the boat. I was in the boat. When they say, we're perishing... They actually, Boyd Jones thinks that the we there was all-inclusive to include Jesus himself. Like, Lord, not only are we going to die, you're going you're to die too. Well, Jesus has told them he's going to die, but it's not going to be yet. He's going to be arrested first. So there's a sense in which the disciples' faith was active in going to Jesus, but it was inactive in the sense that they were panicking when they went to him. See, faith is a gift given by God. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But we have to apply that gift when we feel like panicking. I can give you a car, but if you want to get anywhere, you've got to get in and turn, on, turn the ignition, step on the gas pedal. You have to do something. I can give you groceries, but you actually have to eat them if you're going to survive. And God can give us faith, but we have to apply it to our circumstances. Lloyd-Jones quotes Robert Browning, who said, With me, faith means perpetual unbelief, kept quiet, like the snake beneath Michael's foot, who stands calm just because he feels it writhe. The idea is, faith is that thing that quiets unbelief. Faith is that thing that allows you not to panic when the circumstances call for panic. But you have to apply it. Lloyd-Jones says faith, in this passage, is a refusal to panic. When Jesus says, where is your faith? He's saying, I'm in the boat with you. Why are you panicking? Faith is active. It's something that has to be exercised and applied. You have to consciously put your faith into action. You have faith. Why aren't you applying it? That's his question. Why aren't you winding up that watch? Given what you know about God and what you believe about God, why aren't you refusing to panic? But when you look at the great men of faith in the Bible, you will see them doing this all the time. I often think of Psalm 43 because it's one of my favorite passages in the Scriptures where the psalmist is rehearsing a litany of problems that he has. He's being oppressed and attacked by evil men. He's questioning God, asking God, where are you? In the midst of this, but then near the end of the psalm, he says, Oh, my soul, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. That's him winding up the watch. That's him applying his faith and putting it into action. He's saying, yes, these are my circumstances, but he's my God. So my soul, why? Why are you cast down? Where is your faith? The same thing. Matt mentioned Lamentations 3 uh, this morning with the prophet Jeremiah. He's facing terrible circumstances. Jerusalem has been attacked, it has been devastated, people are dying in the streets, and the prophet is weeping as he watches what the evil empire of Babylon has done to his people and to God's people. And he says he's forgotten what happiness is. That's how he's he's tasted wormwood and gall and the situation is awful. But then he says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. He's winding up the watch. He's preaching to Himself. He's stirring up His faith. He's calling it into action. That's active faith. It's not some thermostat and I'm just saying, boy, it's getting cold. I hope that thermostat kicks in. No, you take control of it. You fan the flame. That's what applying faith is. And when Jesus says, where's your faith? That's what he's calling them to do. So faith is a refusal to panic. It's something to act, that's active. I'm going to take what I know about God. I'm going to take my belief in God. And I'm going to actively apply it to the situation I'm in at this very moment. That's the second thing we learn here about faith. Here's the third and final. Faith must have a definite object. Faith isn't some broad, generic term where it's like I'm going to be generally optimistic and hopeful it's not wishful thinking biblical faith has a definite object and that object is Christ the disciples knew this and that's why they went to Jesus in the storm but in some sense we have even more reason than they did to trust Christ because we see him on the other end of the resurrection from this story in the gospel. They followed him by sight in some sense because they were there walking with him. We follow him by faith because we have the rest of the scriptures at our disposal. And this story gives us the very reason we should trust him above all other things. When they say in Luke, when the disciples say in Luke 8.24, Master, Master, we are perishing. The commentators will tell you there's a direct parallel to what we, in that passage, what we read earlier in the book of Jonah. That's why I wanted to read it. So I want to read uh, some verses from Jonah chapter 1 to you and apply it to the story in Luke 8. Jonah 1.4, which is a little before our reading earlier, it says, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So here, what's, what do we have in common? We have men on a ship. We have a great storm that's threatening to break up the boat. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. So there's panic, there's crying out to a higher power. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had laid down and was fast asleep. Here's someone sleeping during the storm. Verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps... The God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Familiar phrase. That we may not perish. So there's fear of dying. Skipping down a little bit in the passage to verse 11. After Jonah's revealed to them who he is and why the storm has come upon them, because he's a prophet who's on the run from the presence of the Lord, says, verse 11, They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Then verse 15, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So you see the parallels in the story. Both Jonah and Jesus are asleep. Both are awakened by scared sailors. In both, the sea is calmed. The one thing they don't have in common is that in Jonah's story, he's thrown into the sea. And that in Jesus' story, he's not thrown into the sea. Or is he? At least, he's not yet thrown into the sea. Tim Keller comments on this passage. This story is showing us that the stories of Jonah and Jesus aren't actually different when you stand back a bit and look at them with the rest of the story of Jesus in view. But just a few chapters later, in Luke 11, Jesus is going to say, One greater than Jonah is here. He's the greater Jonah. So Keller says, When Jesus said, I am the true, the greater Jonah, he meant this Someday I'm going to calm all storms, still all waves. And he can do that only because when he was on the cross, he was thrown willingly, like Jonah, into the ultimate storm, under the ultimate waves, the waves of sin and death. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that can ultimately sink us, the storm of eternal justice for our sin. That storm wasn't calmed until it swept him away. Storms are often used, as they are in the book of Jonah, in the Bible, for, as a metaphor for God's wrath, and for trials. Storms are often used as a metaphor for us going through situations that are anxious and troubling. You know, hell is called a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where anxiety and panic and storms rule the day. Jesus threw himself into that storm so that he could give us peace. And you calling your faith into action is reminding yourself of this over and over and over again. I may be going through a storm, but I will never go through the ultimate storm. Brings to mind, I remember reading a Spurgeon sermon ages ago, and he talked about the hot hail of the wrath of God. It's an oxymoron, hot hail, but the point was the storm The unfathomable storm of the wrath of God. No matter our circumstances, I want you to ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen to you if Jesus took the wrath of God for you? Because even if you die, it's instant paradise. Instantly in his presence. And so why are we so anxious and troubled? In Mark's version of our story about the storm on the sea, in Mark 4:39, it gives us a little more detail to what Jesus actually said to the wind and the waves. It says, He awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. See, Jesus gives a double command to the wind and the waves. Peace, be still. And as a result of the double command... Two things happened. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You know, imagine a tempestuous sea and all of the waves, and suddenly the wind stops blowing. Well, the waves don't stop just because the wind stopped. That takes time. But when Jesus spoke, peace be still, there was instant calm. As flat as flat can be. Crystal clear. See your reflection in it. That's the picture that Mark is painting in his gospel. And John Owen says, When you remember what Christ has done for you during the storms of life, what you're doing is allowing Jesus to come to you and say those very same words to your soul. Peace, be still. And Owen goes on to say, essentially, That's the peace that passes understanding. That's what the Spirit delights to do in our lives. And you know, Jesus says that the Father delights to grant the Spirit to those who ask. We say, well, we've already got the Holy Spirit. Why should we ask? Ask Jesus. Why does Paul say, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians? Because this is something we have to apply to our lives over and over again. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit. Seeking the peace of Christ, saying to our souls, peace, be still. He says, peace, be still. It's like what you say to a, a child who's worked up. Hey, calm down. Be still. Just after this, our story in the book of Luke, Jesus is going to encounter a man named Jairus, the ruler of a synagogue who asked Jesus to raise his daughter from the dead. And Jesus is going to go to their house, and you know he's going to say to that dead little girl? He's going to say, talitha Talitha kumi. Get up, little girl. He treated her death like she was taking a nap. Because to Jesus, that's all that death is. Because he's one who's come out on the other side of it. And he can treat the most violent storm like it's a little child and say, Peace. Be still. And it's still. You have faith. You've been given the gift of faith as a Christian, the question is, where is it? Are you using it? Are you applying it to your present circumstances? When you go through a struggle, are you going to use the faith that he's given you to actually make it through without panicking? Because as Lloyd-Jones says, faith is a refusal to panic. Faith steps on the snake of unbelief. It is unbelief kept quiet. But you have to call it to action. You have to wind it up like a watch until you hear Jesus saying to your soul, like he said to that storm, peace, be still. Let's pray. Father, we... I know I speak for myself that so often I expect my faith to be automatic. That I think it's just going to come since it's a gift, as something that I don't actually have to improve, as something that I don't actually have to apply. And I find myself panicking, and I find myself anxious, and I'm saying, but I'm a believer. What do I have to fear? I'm leaning on the everlasting arms. And in this passage you say to me, just like you said to your disciples, where is your faith? Yes, you have it, but it's time for you to apply it. And I pray for your people Whoever needed to hear this tonight, and I think we all did, that you would allow them in whatever storm they may be going through, or whatever storm they're about to go through, that they would hear Jesus not only saying, where is your faith? But as they wind up that faith, as they seek to apply it, that they would hear Jesus saying to them, peace, be still. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, which is number 524, Thy works, not mine, O Christ. remind you, if you haven't picked up an Operation Christmas Child box and would like to, there are a few left at the side exit. Uh, Other than that, let's now receive God's blessing. Receive it. Now, grace and mercy and peace be with you all from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.